Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Paul Duncan, writer, historian, and author of the two volumes of the incredible Cash and Star Wars archives. Mr. Duncan's research, insight, never-before-seen photos and documents, and most importantly, his exclusive multi-day interviews with George Lucas himself make these books a must-have. And this interview, if I do say so myself, a must-listen. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 95, Paul Duncan. Obviously, with these two archives books, you've kind of established yourself as a historian of Star Wars, but I'd love to first tackle your history with, with Star Wars and with the saga. When did you first watch it? What was your experience with it growing up? And did it impact you in any way with your writing or with your editing or, or anything like that? Well, Star Wars, I only realized after I'd finished the first Star Wars archives book that Star Wars was actually the very first movie I ever saw on my own. Because, you know, when, you, when you're growing up, right, as, as a kid, your parents or your family, an uncle or an aunt, you know, parents, they always take you out to the movies, you know. So you see your, your Disney movies, you know, for me it was, you know, Jungle Book and Fantasia and all of these. And then my dad would take me to James Bond movies. And uh, and I remember my uncle taking me to see 2001 Space Odyssey on a re-release on a double bill with one million years BC. So I think he went Raquel Welsh. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, each time, it's it's always with somebody else. Mm -hmm. But when I saw uh, in the UK, I saw on the BBC, they ran, uh, I was on holiday from school. I was uh, 77, so I'm 13. And I see this, oh, there's this amazing movie coming out. And I see the the dogfight, you know, the Millennium Falcon, you know, as they're trying to escape the Death Star. Mm-hmm. You know, I see clips of that. And it's like my eyes just like bugged out. <laughs> I, thought, I, I thought, I have to see this movie. And um, unlike, you know, the rest of the world, we had to wait until January 78 mm-hmm. for it to come out in London. Now, at the end of January, on the very first day it was available locally, I persuaded my father to bring me up on a Sunday, on the first day, for the very first showing, you know, so that I was there. So my, my Star Wars is my first my first love, if you like, from, from that point of view. And, and I was going well, how on earth did they do that? <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> right. it's like, because you've seen the movies, you know, you've seen, I'd seen great movies. I'd seen The Incredible Shrinking Man, which I thought was fantastic and still think it's one of the, the great, great movies. And I saw them and The Day the Earth Stood Still and More of the Worlds and all of these sort of movies on television. And I thought, well, how on earth did they do that? And it was around that time, uh, again, on a holiday, um, I saw um, a copy of Starlog magazine, mm-hmm. and uh, and in it, it was it was telling you, it, oh, there is actually a magazine that tells you how these things work and what happens behind the scenes, and um, and then Starburst started to appear in the UK, right. um, as a UK version of that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and then I started because I loved all this and I, I love comics as well. I collected comics watched all the television shows, all the Jerry Anderson TV shows, UFO, Space 1999, all this, uh, Captain Scarlet. So all of these things I loved. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, oh, uh, I'll put them all together. I'll do a magazine like these magazines. Yeah. 
And so I used to, my dad used to bring home from his um, from his work some of the draftsmen. Um, you know, uh, he was in maintenance, but some he knew the draftsmen, and they had spare paper, mm-hmm. right? And he'd come home with a wad of spare paper, you know, quite large, um, and I would. I would add margins. I would do lines and margins and everything, and I would copy out these my favourite articles from all these magazines. Right. And I would find my favourite pictures, right. And instead of maybe not using the pictures that were there, and I would draw them out, mm-hmm. you know. And then I would make these little magazines, my right. own little magazines. So of course, you know, I included Star Wars and all, all the other things and. Marvel comics and you know um, everything I liked and also but also at the same time that I met somebody at school who was really into Doctor Who I mean I was into Doctor Who as well uh, and he says oh there are things called fanzines you know? <laughs> right and um, you know short for fan magazines you've know, never heard of them he brought a few of them in and he says oh why don't we do one mm-hmm. right and of course I was already primed I was like yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I'm doing it, yeah. <laughs> you mean you can print these things? You can make copies? There's not just the one copy, you know, that I made um, at home and coloured and everything. And, uh, and and that's essentially how it started. So, of course, there's a Star Wars. Um, uh, I did a little review of Star Wars in my first one, which came out in 1980. Arkansas was the name of the, the, uh, of the fanzine. I did everything in it, all the writing, all the drawings, except for one article which my friend did because it was Doctor Who and he was interested more you know he was better at that than I was and of course there was an article on Star Wars in it now we didn't have access to a a typewriter or anything like that but my friend's aunt was the secretary at the school that we went to right so she used the school typewriter in order to type up the magazine. And of course, she didn't understand anything that we'd written down, all these like bizarre names, etc. And of course, there would be typos. So I remember the very first, uh, I mean, to this day, which is uh, uh, the first typo, because something's whenever you publish anything, there's always something wrong. That's the first rule of publishing. There's no such thing as something that's perfect. Uh, there's always a, a flaw, Some something goes horribly wrong. And as soon as you get it and you open it up, it's the first thing you spot. I would call, I remember uh, we printed a magazine, actually printed using the school equipment, and um, opened it up. And of course, Han Solo had been typoed with the L and the O together, so he became Han Sob. Oh no! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so that's my sob story. Uh, so this is how it started. This is how it started for me in 1980, and basically. It just went on from there. It's just about um, me making my own magazines and doing my own writing and stuff like that and meeting more and more people and, and just doing what I'm, I'm interested in and enthusiastic about. I love it. I mean, because I mean, obviously, you're not just a Star Wars behind the scenes author. You are a film historian. And I'd love to kind of track that journey a little bit going from zines to then being published and and being kind of a chronicler of not only Star Wars, but James Bond and The Godfather and all these incredible, incredible movies and all these books and all everything that you're chronicling as a historian, period, right? As a historian of published things, I think would be very interesting to, to dive in even more. The thing for me, the thing that's always interesting is 
how did they do that, right? Because that's the, the magic. You're always looking for the magic. It's it's like a long-winded version of um, where do you get your ideas, mm-hmm. right? That's that's the thing that every creator, right? It's it's the one um, uh, it's the one question they're always asked, right? And um, and they're always trying to find out for themselves. Mm-hmm. And normally, what it comes down to is your ideas come from what you've read and seen and done in your life, right? So, so for example, me, I, I've just started writing comics again now, mm-hmm. right? So I, I'm starting writing now. Now, because I have read for donkey's years mm-hmm. and I've seen movies for donkey's years and, um, uh, and I've seen different parts of the world and met different types of people, etc. everything that I've experienced, right, can funnel into that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so all my interests, if you like, from from the very beginning. So this first magazine, um, Arkansas, that I did, which I did for 10 years, mm-hmm. uh, which is quite a long time for a fanzine. Normally, you know, it just lasts a few years or a few issues. Right. But I got up to issue 33, you know. But ultimately, what, what happened was I turned it from a, like a multimedia magazine into just about comics. Right. And then it became just about interviewing comic creators yeah the artists and writers so what i did was i i taught myself what i was interested in and then honed down onto that and so in that way i got to meet a lot of writers a lot of artists and and from them i learned of their influences i I learned of all the artists they'd grown up with and who influenced influenced them um, and then the same things started to happen. I did another thing called Crime Time, which was all about uh, mystery fiction, as right. you say in America, what we call crime fiction here, which is, uh, you know, and I was really interested in noir. Right. Um, so from film noir, which I, I adore, I thought, well, a lot of these stories seem to seem to come from novels, right? Who are these writers? So who's Jim Thompson? Who's Cornell Woolrich? Who's David Goodis? Who's Frederick Brown? You know, all these names kept reoccurring, you know, in in the credits. Uh, And then I started investigating them. And then I started to find out, oh, a lot of books uh, weren't, aren't in print or were only ever published once in some obscure paperback. Um, uh, And and then that led led me into that. So I would then find and discover artists uh, artists and writers yeah, and, and that's really what it is. It's it's about the constant search for something. You don't know what it is, but you're interested in it, and and so you that search just continues. That journey just continues. I mean, I've just picked up like I've always wanted to own. I mean, people can't see this, but this is um, uh, it's a very small book, Marijuana by William Irish, who is Cornell Woolrich, um, and I, I, this has always been one of the iconic books that I've always wanted to get hold of uh, Night in the City, Gerald Kirsch, Kirsch being one of my favourite authors, Glass Key by Dashiell Hammer. So these are all things I, I, I find and I'm interested in. And they all they all become part of, of me and what I'm interested right. in. And then that informs everything I do. So so for example, if I if I sit down and I talk with George Lucas, 
I want to be able to talk to him, you know, as a person, right? I want to find connections between me and him that can say, so that he doesn't think I'm a complete idiot, right. complete wazak or whatever, you know. Uh, as it happened, I happened to, uh, I read a book called Sapiens just before I met George. And uh, I realized that there were a lot of things within the book, some of the ideas and some of the, some of the thoughts or just the areas of interest, you know, they started to make me think, and then they started to make me think of Star Wars in a different way, mm-hmm. you know, and of the universe. And then I thought, well, hold on a minute, George is about anthropology. Right. You're you know, right. Um, you know, this should be obvious. You know, why didn't I think I'm such an idiot? You know, and so it starts me off thinking in, in a, of George and of Star Wars in a different way. So everything we do is accumulation yeah. of what we've done in in the past and so what i'm you know when i sit down with george what i'm trying to find out is what has he accumulated right. what are the things that have taken him along this path so for me it's you know star wars just isn't important american graffiti is important thx 1138 is important you know his his films at usc right. are important and his life before that is important. Uh, and that's why within the, the, the two books, I cover all that. Yeah, so that we, it's, it's only by knowing that that you can have a better picture or understanding of where George is coming from and why he does what he does. Yeah, I mean, even probably the first, let's say, 7,500 pages of the original archives book is what you're describing. And about him as a documentarian of really kind of getting his chops. And I actually just uh, rewatched his Francis Ford Coppola documentary because it's on Vimeo now. Yeah. And seeing the through lines of who George is, I think is the testament of these two books and the the best reason for them to exist, right? It's, it's easy to be like, yeah, like there's beautiful pictures or whatever, but the through lines of this two never before seen George Lucas looking back on his you know, career kind of retrospective is, is really incredible. And so maybe let's tackle the first one and, and the opportunity that came up. Was the Lucas interview already part of the archives book when you were given the assignment or when you pitched it or what, how that process happened? Or was it kind of, as you worked on it, re- you realized that this was the needed backbone of the book? Well, it was the latter. I mean, I, I never go into, I, I go in with a completely blank slate. I mean, I'd essentially been away from Star Wars for 20 years. I mean, I'd seen the the prequel trilogy when they came out. But by that stage, if you like, um, my life, etc., um, the work, etc., had, had just moved on into right. so many different areas because I'm always in, investigating. So if I'm doing one of these big books, say on Charlie Chaplin right. or Ingmar Bergman or James Bond or whatever, right, I'm literally completely immersed for a couple of years you know just just thinking about reading trying to write and assemble everything to do with those subjects right so um so coming on to star wars it was like tashin and and lucasfilm had been trying to do things over the years Mm -hmm. okay so a contract was signed and i was said i was told go do it paul go make a book Mm -hmm. so i said okay i'll go make a book and and so I turned up at the archives, and the first thing you do is you you look at what there is, right? Because um, because the Tasha books are essentially visual books. I think to a very large extent, 
people look down on the books because they're seen as purely picture books, mm. as coffee table books, as as books with no content, you know, or w- with no real reason to be other than just being nice to look at, right? So, um, so the books I try to do, I try to do something that's a bit better than that, that's mm. a bit more interesting, and that adds to the to the knowledge that we already have. So when I went into the archives, I essentially just had to look at what's there and tried to figure out, well, what's the story, right? And I didn't know what the story was. I spent about a year, I think, in the archives mm-hmm. before I realized what I wanted to know mm-hmm. is what did George think? Right. <laughs> you know, because it, be- it became obvious well, this is the guy who's making all the decisions. Every single piece of paper that I've seen, George has read or looked at or commented upon. So really, it was his opinion that was the most important. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I thought, well, who is this guy? And, you know, can I, you know, can I talk to him? Well, luckily, I'd been on the ranch, you know, for months, almost a year. So, So by the time I got, you know, I asked, the people on the ranch already knew who I who I was. Well, I mean, by this stage, George had already given me access to his archives. Right. Right. So uh, it started off with just Lucasfilm, and and then it's um, George has his own archives, and I got access to those uh, as well. Um, and so the next step was to ask George whether he would consent to do an interview, and, and luckily he said yes. And then so we. We booked a day. How much will you need? Oh, I, th- I think I'll need a day. Think, you know, because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. because you, you sort of like you get in there, right? And you sort of try to elbow your way in. The really, you know, really nice. Everybody, I mean, everybody was so nice. And in fact, at the ranch, um, you get a completely, you are completely isolated right. from from the world in many ways. And because I was staying there for you know a period of time, uh, you get a completely different set. There's a, it's a very idealistic, very creative sort of mm. space, and um, and that affects you in a very positive way. Um, that you believe that you can do things, that you can produce better work, that you've got to stay, you, you've got to up, up your game to keep up, you know, with the people, you know, in whose company you're with, <laughs> you know. So it is, you know, scary and encouraging at the same time. So yeah, so but it was great to get that opportunity to, to to meet with George, and he was absolutely lovely. Uh, I mean, you, I mean, if you've seen any interviews with George, you can see how he's shy and reticent, but at the same time, he has a very black or dark sense of humour. It, it's very low key. It's very understated, and uh, and that was a lot of you know. I have a similar sense of humour, so. Um, we, we sort of got, yeah. you know, so uh, so everything went well. I mean, it's a testament to your interviewing style because, as you said, like if you watch a George Lucas interview from the past decade, even it might seem a little more cold than otherwise. Mm-hmm. But you're able to approach it in a way that it wasn't, because people they're like, "What would you ask George Lucas?" I'm like, "I wouldn't ask George Lucas anything." <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. Yeah. You would, you would, like you were saying earlier, you meet him where he is. You talk to him about what he likes. You, yeah. you would ask him about Scrooge McDuck comics and you would, you know what I mean? Like you, you talk to him as a person 
And I think that's the the real greatness of these books. And the first one especially sticks out to me, but it, it's the familiarity you already have with George. And that's even more stated in the second one. And only after a day or two of interviewing him is is pretty incredible. And I'd love to kind of dive a little bit into your preparation is the wrong word, but what were you trying to get in terms of a through line, in terms of the inspirations? As you mentioned earlier, you know, what were you hoping to really tackle in your limited time with him to make the book a success? Well, the way I work, I mean, physically, right, what, what happens for me, right, mm-hmm. um, when I'm interviewing is that um, I'm extremely nervous, right? I'm extremely nervous for days. I'm on, I'm on edge, mm-hmm. right? And what I'm doing is because I'm making notes to myself about my thoughts, right? And I'll list them and I'll order them, right? And I'll make these long things, if you like, uh, almost like crib sheets, you know, on on what to on what to do, um, uh, on what's interesting. But I don't really think of questions, right? Because I'm not very I'm not very good at interviews, right? So, for example. On a, on a television show or any of these interview shows that you see, uh, there's a very precise way that people, the interviewer, wants an entertainment program, yeah, that that will fit a certain period of time. And a lot of interviews that you may have seen with, with George, um, e- e- even online, they're also cut, right? So they're presented in, in, a, in a particular way. And I try to be a lot more relaxed about it. So for me, I mean, George led it um, in a way because uh, as soon as I came came in, um, he said, well, I don't want a question and answer. I want a conversation, mm. right? And I thought, phew, <laughs> yeah, thank goodness for that. Yeah, because right. I don't have any questions, really. <laughs> and the, the other thing said, he said, well, you know, I'm going to edit you know, when, when you're finished, I'm going to edit every word and, you know, and make sure it's all correct and right. all this sort of stuff, you know, so be prepared for this, right? And I says, no problem, whatever you want, you know, it's not a problem for me, you know, because I want what George wants to say in the book. And um, so so that was fine. But, th- but really, I mean, I hardly slept the night before. Um, and this is always the same in any interviews I'm, I'm, I'm doing. Even with you, Brandon, I couldn't sleep last night. This, <laughs> um, so so this is uh, so this is what what happens. But once I'm there, I try. Uh, uh, an interview is really about listening to the person who's talking, right? Hearing what they're saying, right? And then when they stop talking, you start talking. You know, and hopefully on the same subject, and uh, and you just keep it going, right? Now, obviously, I know that um, there are going to be longers. There are going to be points at which uh, it's going to get repetitive. Um, there's points that you know, the stuff that George has talked about many times before that's going to be repeated. You know, and we we would go off. You know, a conversation could start and just go off, right, into big non-Star Wars territory. You know, I mean, it just like, there were no limits, yeah, to the conversation. 
And and that I think helps establish who I was and and who he was uh, in a talk. So so that we we knew who we were talking to. Often I find uh, when I've been doing interviews for a long, long period of time, I remember I was interviewing James Elroy, who's a, a novelist, a um, great novelist, uh, did Black Dahlia and LA Confidential, I suppose a lot of people know. And um, and he's a sort of guy and he's got a shtick, right? And what, what, he, what he does, um, he has this sort of bebop way of talking. And so if you ask him a question, He'll come back with these set answers. And this is often the way that people will have set answers to questions because they've been asked the same questions over and over again. And then what what happens is after about half an hour, I mean, it changes from person to person, but after about half an hour, that person, um, you know, they've run out of the set answers, right? And once they realize that maybe you've done your research and you have actually read their books or seen their movies, may actually know you know what you know if you go a bit deeper they may actually know what you're talking about right that's when the shtick ends right Right. and the people start talking to you as 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 people yeah and that's and that's the exciting bit when you actually meet somebody right and they they allow themselves to be themselves in an interview right and that's if you like the magic moment Uh, and from then on it doesn't really matter what what you talk about, right? Because you're you're, you're getting something that's authentic from the person, and uh, and the other aspect of it, which is is nice, is that because it's you know on tape or or whatever electronic means nowadays, um, uh, it means you can edit it, right? right? So basically, the first thing I do is edit out everything I say, right? Because it's enough of absolutely no interest to anybody. People are not, um, you know, people are not reading this thing to listen to me waffle on right. forever. Um, you know, they want they want to hear George, you know, mm-hmm. or Ben Burt or uh, Doug Chan or right. you know, Ryan Church or Eric Tiemans or John Knoll. Do you know what I mean? So, and um, they're not interested in me. I know this. So um, so that's the first thing you do. But the great thing is that you can edit it. You can take out all the things because often people do not speak in, in full sentences. When you do an interview and you transcribe it, in, in speech, you know, as, as we're doing now, you can say a lot of things, a lot of things can be implied and, you know, and it carries, the message behind it carries. But when you actually turn it into cold black and white text, Right, the message doesn't carry, so um, so you have to edit it and massage the text. Uh, and often somebody will, like I'm doing now, somebody will talk, and they'll remember, oh, I've got to give context for what I just right. said, right, and then tell you something that within text you would put beforehand. So this is all part of, if you like, the editing process, and. Uh, you know, it's not just interviewing, it's editing. So it means that you have to retell the story the way George or anybody would have liked to have told it, you know, yeah. in, a, in a perfect world. And um, so that that's in terms of the process of making these things. Uh, it also means that the, the amount of text 
is condensed considerably because often people often talk around the subject and not get down to the definitive subject itself. Once you're in the subject, then that's the nugget that you want to include in the book because the rest of it, you know, is not is already known or you already have the context within part of the story. So everything I'm trying to find from from somebody is just somebody being themselves and telling you something about um, their job or their work or the way that they think. So I remember I was on, uh, so I've done the James Bond book, James Bond Archives, and there's a new edition of it coming coming out when the new film comes out, when No Time to Die comes out. So I was on set and I interviewed people, um, uh, you know, the crew, you know, uh, etc. And I remember there was one crew member, uh, she was dealing with the set design, uh, so it's um, set dressing. Almost the first thing she said to me was, oh, this is each time um, I build a set around the character, I'm trying to show the soul of the character, yeah? So visually, with the set dressing, within that set, she's trying to put in objects that explain the character who lives in that space so that she's making connections to the history of the character without getting into too much detail about it. But the whole point of that is by saying that, I didn't know what I was going to really, how the interview was going to go. But as soon as she said that to me, right, I understood this is somebody who thought extremely deeply about her work, took it, was very conscientious, right? And and she has ideas outside of the movie. And and so it was a matter of, so I, I immediately in my mind, it clicked, okay, let's go through each of the characters and each of the sets in order to see what she thought, yeah? Right. And how she interpreted those characters. And and that's what you're looking for. You're looking for those moments where where something tells you something about the person uh, and they, they're telling you that, right, so that you can not exploit it or, or anything like that, but to explore it if they're willing to explore it. For the actual authentic communication between two people, which I, I'm going to have to cut out like half the things you said because it's all you're just giving away the secrets. You're, you're you know, like like when you were like, yeah, I cut myself for me. I come like I am not in this podcast at all. We're, we're yeah. going to talk for, let's say, an hour. I'll cut it down to 40 minutes. I'll sure. take out literally probably everything I say, <laughs> every, you know, and then yeah, it's just yeah. going to be right. What you're saying, because with Star Wars, especially and James Bond, I'm sure is the same where we've gotten these books hundreds of times, right? Like we've read sure. the same articles. We've seen the same things. Yeah, yeah. And so when you have George Lucas talking about something, we could have read that in half these books behind me. You know what I mean? And so yeah, yeah. what you're saying is let's delve into to something that's human and authentic. Um, and I mean, going, going from the, the, original trilogy archives to the prequel archives is very interesting because there's a slight shift where the original archives have just your interviews with George and Ben Burt. And then prequel archives, you expand that a little bit and you're able to talk more one-on-one with different crew members besides just taking from articles or books or, or anything like that. And you're able to craft a further narrative. It starts with the foreword from George about kind of how the prequels reinvented digital technology for yeah. movies and just in general period. Sure. And I'd be interested 
because there was such a shift, because it went a little bit more from research to then let me get the firsthand accounts from so many people 20 years after the fact, how did that affect you and putting the book together for the prequels especially? And then did that affect your interviewing or who you wanted to talk to at all? For the first book, really, I only only wanted to interview George, to be honest. Um, But I was lucky enough to have bumped into Ben Burt, right? (laughs) So I immediately started recording because he's... <laughs> right, he'd, it's been right. Yeah, yeah I, I kept bumping into him because you have lunch, right? Because uh, he works on, on the ranch, Skywalker Sound. Right. He's got his office there with his... It's like the TARDIS, you know, it's full of like all these amazing things inside it. And But I kept... I, kept, I, I was meeting him every now and again. And each time I met him, he would tell me something and I, was, I would go... I would swear and say... Why didn't I have a recorder with me? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. um, you know, he would tell me, you know, great little snippets of things, and I go, darn it. So eventually, I, I got to um, after, I think after a day with uh, George, I, I I popped over. I was leaving, I think, the following day, and I popped over to see Ben, and you know, and I, I got an hour with him, and, um, and he, he was lovely. But but the whole idea of the first one was to follow George's journey. Because once I realised that, if you like, the beginning was his accident when he was 18, right? And and if you like, that jolted him into the idea of becoming a, a person and growing up, right. yeah? And, find, and doing something with his life and then finding it at college through anthropology. And then, um, and then he tried to express it through art and then he tried to express it through photography and then he went to USC um, and then he learned about film and then he thought oh I can express all these ideas about anthropology through through film right that's the thing I'm really good at yeah that uh, I just he just has a natural knack for it but he still has to learn how to do it because a Padawan always has to learn right? (laughs) right So it then becomes, um, if you like, the first book is about that process of George becoming an independent filmmaker. So that that whole first book. Uh, And then at the end of it, um, when he does become an independent filmmaker, uh, when he does return to the Jedi, he's essentially safe, right? He has a studio, he has the VFX company, uh, he, he owns his own IP. He has everything, but then, then he has the divorce, you know, from from uh, from Marsha, and that really knocks him um, back again. So, if you like the and he, there's even an interview where he says it was like hitting that walnut tree again. Yeah, mm. um, right. you know that crash. So, so I understood within the context of of a story of a human story. Right, I th- I thought this was uh, this is quite a, a moving human story, you know. Right. But you know, we use Star Wars and and what he makes in order to show what George has to go through, you know, and what he's trying to achieve. In the second one, George had basically regrouped and become uh, he'd spent twenty years remaking and rebuilding Lucasfilm in order to get it back to a point where he can start making 
Star Wars, um, making the next Star Wars. So for the second one, it becomes about the technology um, and it becomes about um, that journey that they that Lucasfilm and the industry had to make in order to become digital. Right. It's it's not just the VFX. It's not just the CG. It's about um, pixel in through the camera to pixel out through the projector and it being all pixels and digital in between, which is an enormous undertaking for an industry. Um, that's what George's forward is all about. Now, George, you know, as he'll say himself, is not a tech guy, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I um, and he said, "Oh, I think you should talk to." I mean, it came from George. You know, he gave me a list of people. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. He says you should talk to this so and so and so so, and so I said, "Yes, George, no problem." And um, because it, you know, we were of one thought on it. We we had the same idea for the book at the same time, so it wasn't a wasn't a problem. We right. both understood that that was the journey. And then it became a matter of, uh, again, George is now back in the driving seat um, and he can develop these techniques of uh, not just the physical act, right, but also um, he can delve deeper into the world of Star Wars that, like he'd never been able to before. And so that becomes what, what the book is about. Um, and to do that, I needed to talk to, to everybody involved. <laughs> Again, we're dancing around it a little bit. The first hundred pages of both of your books, yeah, uh, since they're all great, but the first hundred pages of both of your books really are just so meaty. And with the first hundred pages of, of prequel archives, it really is. It's special editions, quote unquote, but it's it's not. It's it's let's go through the entire process of young Sherlock Holmes and the Abyss, and when he sees Jurassic Park for the first time. And then I love that you went to Larry Cuba and all the things that they were already doing on the original trilogy. Yeah, yeah. I would call it. I contacted Larry. Uh, I was able to get a couple of photos that that I, I think had been published before, or I think one hadn't been published before. Mm-hmm. But he said, oh, I've only got these bad copies. So he sent them to me. Right. And then the following weekend, uh, he says, because um, he's in California, you know, so mm-hmm. somewhere. And... Um, he said, uh, I don't have the originals, right? And then the following re- weekend, he says, I found really good proof copies. And then the following weekend, <laughs> he says, oh, I found the originals. These are high-res scans, right? And yeah. I, he sends me the high-res scans, and I said, they're not high-res enough. He says, don't worry, I'll send you higher-res scans. <laughs> so uh, he he was great, you know. So and But that is, but that is the first computer-generated uh, sequence in Star Wars, you know, which yep. is the trench run. And I thought, yeah, I mean, because George had already, because he was interested in experimental cinema, you know, people sort of, you know, um, look down on this idea of George and experimental cinema, but really people have, have no inkling of what George knows or does or or, or anything. You know, this guy is is, you know, extremely well-read. He's extremely well-connected. Anyway, but at that time in um, 77, uh, or earlier, 75, uh, George wanted uh, to get the, um, uh, John Whitner Jr. 
to to be involved. And he'd done this these experimental artwork like Arabesque. And Larry Cooper had actually worked on Arabesque, you see. So he was like his assistant. Um, so this is why George George knows exactly what he wants. Uh, and yes, yeah, so I wanted to follow that all the way through. Um, and in fact, the whole idea of uh, digital is something that ILM did not want to get involved in, uh, which I found very interesting. This is why the computer division was essentially talking about making 3D models, if you like, and um, within a virtual computer space, right? And what ILM were interested in were making uh, 2D uh, cutouts, which is what optical printing is, um, but finding a way of making 2D images and mashing them together in order to um, uh, to go on this flat surface, which is um, uh, which is a film strip. Yeah. Right. So th- for a long period of time, there was this division, if you like, mm-hmm. between how to pr- about how to proceed at ILM, and it was only really when people like Dennis Murren uh, took up digital and took six months off in order to learn digital. You know, and George is all about people learning, right? So if there's a new tool or a new gadget or whatever, George doesn't learn them himself, but he's happy to help other people or to facilitate other people to learn and to experiment and to go out and to improve and do something better. Because George, in his mind, right, um, there's, uh, I think there was even, there was an interview from the 60s with George and there was a similar one with uh, Francis Ford Coppola. And they're talking essentially about digital cinema. They're talking about using videos. They were talking in the 60s at people <laughs> having videos and being able to bring the home, their own film back on a video to watch at home right. like they, you do a book from a library. Anybody who's gr- gr- like my age, right, or older, knows that there was a period when you could not um, record or have any copy of any movie. I mean, I, I grew up watching movies on television as a kid, there being no reference, no internet movie database or anything like that, making uh, and remembering all the movies in my head, remembering the titles of all the movies before I went to bed, right? Uh, in order to make my own internal database, yeah, yeah, and um, because there was no, and then I would get these awful books, awful film books, only because they actually had the list of credits or or things on them that wasn't available. So there was a period where you, the idea of bringing something home to watch it at home and having it available to watch in your own time was like that was science fiction, right? But George and Francis had these ideas in, in the 60s. They saw how things should be. And so if you like, that first 100 pages is about how George was making that a reality. And the whole book is about George making um, a vision that he has, which is for people um, to not only control every image, but to control every pixel, right, on an image, right? And that's, if, if you like, George's legacy. I agree. And, I mean, even even in that foreword, because I read the foreword, and I was like, oh, that's 
like he says like phantom menace i was like oh that's weird and then i looked and you have the date 1999 yeah right so he's writing it and then there's a quote i wrote down because i was just like he says a digital backlot is no different than a film backlot the stories are what you're trying to communicate and i was like oh that's what we're seeing now 20 years after that with the mandalorian right like his vision it took 20 years for then his protégés like John Knoll to now be in charge of it all to make something like the volume possible. He's always he's always way ahead of his time and this book really does a great way of of putting that into focus. Yeah, that that whole um thing. I mean they were on the way with Underworld. Um yep. they were on the way to to the volume, but it always comes down to the numbers, right? So they were doing experiments, uh, digital experiments, um, on uh, Young Indy, the TV series, in order to test the technology and develop it. Then they put it onto Raiderland Murders, mm-hmm. right, in order to see if they could do it on 35 mil instead of 16 mil on on film, because we're still on film, right? And um, so that they and then they were d- doing this special editions. All the stuff you see in the special editions. Those are they're testing the technology of what they which they're making up as they go yeah. along, and um, uh, in order to see well how much does this cost, you know, yeah. and will that be low enough for us to do the x hundred x thousand shots that we need to make for yeah. Star Wars F one, so uh, but it does go on to. Um, but all that stuff, you know, the, there's nothing that's happening now that George hasn't already thought of, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but but the thing is, he's put, he put in place with those people, right? He trusted John Knoll, Dennis Murren, and everybody else in there, Eric Tiemens, Doug Chang, Ryan Church, and a whole pile of others, Ben Burt, all these people, Matthew Wood, if all these people are people that um, um, he either grew up with through this process or they came on board and they developed and moved it forward. You know, so, I mean, this is all about bringing together a team, yeah. a team of collaborators, right, who all want the same thing, which is to do better work, right, and to advance uh, the world and the and the technology, you know, this is the other thing that George has done, which is by um, living by the creed, you know, that he puts forward in Star Wars, right? This was part of the reason why it was such a joy um, to be on the ranch, to be around people who are around George, um, and to and to see through their eyes what how they see George, you know. Right. And I got some very, people are very emotional about the ranch, about Star Wars. I mean, people within within Lucasfilm, within the ranch, you know, what George has created is a very beautiful and precious thing, right? And the people recognize it and, you know, are trying to remain true to it. And I'm glad you were able to bring that up to him near the end of the book where you were like, I've talked to all these people and they still have just incredible emotions about working with you. And it was hard and it, it sucks sometimes. But he he compared it to like going through a war with someone. And I yeah. thought it was very apt because it is similar experiences that I've had being able to talk to these people that, you know, to them it was 
just a job initially and they were, you know, just kind of going through the paces, but they were on the cusp constantly. And I keep, that's the thrill line I keep trying to get at is like, did they realize early 90s, especially like people like Tyreeman Ellingson, who I'm so glad that you talked to because I feel like some of his influence and what he's doing with Terrell and all these yeah. people, incredible. It's like, do they really, like, are they the lunch break at the ranch or at ILM? Like, like, oh, we just like created a whole new way to make movies. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it really is very insightful because I feel like I'm just like really just belaboring the point. Because uh, now as when you move into The Phantom Menace, it is great, as you mentioned, seeing the carryover of people that worked on Young Indy and yeah. that were part of Lucasfilm for years. And then, and then had to sometimes audition for the chance to then work on Star Wars, right? Yeah. And then use what they learned, right? You have even like Trisha Bigger and Gavin Bouquet and David Tattersall, right? Who worked on Young Indy and like yeah. kind of this band of brothers with Rick McCallum going through Europe then using that knowledge to make a Star Wars movie. And so I guess the question from that is what experiences were you able to pull from them or what what are the, the main learnings that they were taking as they started making, especially the first prequel? Because I think by the third, you mentioned like it's there was no development with the third. It was more just more, right? But with the first and then especially the second with the digital camera, I'd be curious if, if there was anything that stuck out to you. The thing is, I mean, the specifics i mean everything gets blurred for me because um i've i've been working on this <laughs> for so long um, <laughs> but the because uh, it's four years in total you know for, right. the, for the whole thing four years and a lifetime yeah <laughs> right 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 and uh the thing that i found most interesting about phantom menace um was was the year that George spent in pre-production that, you know, before, while he was writing it, etc. I I thought, you know, that normally you don't get um, a year to just sit down and just go through ideas and to hash things out and to try to turn something that's amorphous, you know, it's it's like, you know, it's unformed, Right, and to to eventually bring you know by an iterative process bring something through until it becomes something, and then it becomes meaningful in some way. It's it's like Doug Chang. He he, he was you know um, uh, he he ran the the design team through the uh, through the whole process, and uh, he he was saying about like the droids. Uh, the Baron droids, as they were originally known, um, you know, that he wanted to have stormtroopers. The initial idea was that it, they were stormtroopers. They were like stormtroopers, but droids, right? So that's why it's sort of black and white in all the original um, uh, drawings. And so he went back to the idea of bones, uh, and, and there's a whole process of doing that. It became an iterative process. Mm-hmm. Uh, he African art. He was influenced by. He was taking. He was, but he was allowed to do that. He was allowed to right. to go through that that process. And so, I think my takeaway from this is that that's when I understood that George was allowing everybody to play in Star Wars land. George, it was it was Doug Chang and it was Terrell Whitlatch. And Ian McCaig 
uh, and everybody else, um, uh, there are a lot of artists that work on these. Uh, but then it was all the sculptors and the model makers and then all the, the VFX people, all the, the set design, Gavin Bakay and, you know, the cinematography, every aspect of, of the process, people were allowed to express themselves. It wasn't, um, and George and Rick set up this environment. Because I, I think I asked, I asked Rick at, at one stage, because I remember I went to, George said, Oh, you have to meet Rick. I said, mm-hmm. okay. Right. So <laughs> right. Um, I said, happy to do that. So so we arranged for a, for a day for for me to meet Rick. So there's George and Rick and me. Oh, my gosh. The, yeah. And the three of us, we sit down, right? And then George starts talking for four hours. He's <laughs> 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 like, it's like I, I said, so I sat down. Right. And I thought, yeah, I would, I would be talking to, to Rick. Right. And George will sort of chime in. But no, it was, <laughs> it was George talking. Right. And Rick going, um, going, oh, yeah. And he'd like fill in information or <laughs> whatever. Right. And his it was always like the amount of time it took or the amount of money it cost, right. or, <laughs> you know, or, or the particular problem, because you know, about who to persuade on this mm-hmm. issue. So there were all things like that. And occasionally George uh, would say something and Rick was getting, um, he, he was getting hungry by this stage. So mm-hmm. so he went off to the buffet to get something and, and came back and then just chimes back in, you know. <laughs> so, no, but that was great because what, what, happened, uh, what happened was that when we stopped, mm-hmm. right, we, we had lunch and then, and then afterwards, I went off um, uh, with uh, with Rick on my own, and uh, and we we had a, we did an interview, you know, just solo, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, but I, I asked I asked Rick, I said, Rick, what was it really like on set with with George, you know? Because you know you know in the um, you know when you see the behind the scenes, etc., you know, people. You know, people are very deferential to, to George, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Rick said, no, 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 it, it wasn't like that at, at, at all. You know, everybody was, um, everybody had ideas, right? And everybody was putting forward ideas and everything was discussed, right? And George would, you know, would, would you know, try the ones that he thought would work well. No, and if somebody else had another idea, right, he was like, all in, right, let's do it. You know, he wasn't prescriptive in in any way. Mm. And uh, and I, I thought that was, there was lucky, there wasn't an atmosphere. You know, I've been on sets where there can be an atmosphere, mm. yeah? And, and with George, you know, they said no. And I think I mentioned... Um, I think I mentioned this to maybe Doug Chang as well, you know, about this idea. Everybody's saying they were like, uh, everybody was a yes man, you know, right. uh, saying yeah. yes to, to George. And, you know, and people say, nah, it, it wasn't like that. Everybody had their say. Everybody, you know, stood in their corner, you know, and fought for their ideas. You know, I mean, they were committed because they'd been allowed to express themselves 
through their art and through their work. So like on James Bond, like that um, lovely lady who had these ideas in her head, everybody was committed, you know, on Star Wars and they had, they built up ideas and scenarios in their head uh, and and reasons why their ideas were were great. Um, and what, what George is, he's filtering all that information about the things that he already knows because he's lived in this world yeah since the early 1970s right right in his writing process he talks about um uh, each day having to you know when he's allowed the time each day right in his mind he's in that world and he's walking around he's walking through it right not necessarily in terms of plot but just in terms of saying, well, what's there and why is it there? And in that way, he builds up all the backstory, all the technology, all the politics and uh, dynamics, the uh, economics, industry, education, everything to do with each of the cultures, right? He's already building up in his mind. And the script is only a fraction of what he's right. he's telling you which is necessary to tell the story in order to move the plot forward so what one of the things of course that's what i wanted to ask george i want to ask george about some of those things so that's why he talks about midichlorians and the wills right. and the rule of two and sith lords and you know and what parsecs are and stuff like this you know so um so there is all of that you know, um, uh, the law, uh, L-O-R-E, you know, uh, of of Star Wars that um, uh, that he talks about as well, which is uh, which is great. And so within the context of the story, as well as moving the story forward through Phantom Menace and the telling of it, you know, if there is a particular thing that needs to be explained, like midichlorians, then I, I know that that piece of information that George has given needs to go in that place, you know. So, so within the as I mean, as you know, Brandon, you know, when when you're reading it, I do, if like, jump back and forth, you know, between this timeline of events and if you like, jumping away to uh, to George talking about a particular thing. Right. And again, it's interesting because the book is presented where the interview is almost a standalone, slightly chronological for how the process is going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the pictures and the other elements are chronological for the actual plot of the film. Yeah. Which I think it's it's very interesting. It, it adds so much because you're really like parsing so many different things. And I think it, it adds to the, the whole reading experience. And I'd love you mentioned it. And, and I kind of you mentioned economics and education at the Star Wars universe. And one thing that is very evident through the book, and especially the second one, and I'm so glad that you were able to talk more and more about it, because there's still the conversation when people are like, oh, Star Wars is getting political now, Star Wars is too, whatever. And I'm like, oh my God, people, watch a Star Wars movie, like know who George Lucas is, because you're able to, to be like, okay, let's talk about the politics. And he's already, uh, I wrote it down, like businessmen are becoming the government. The Republic died because the people <laughs> handed it over, right? Like these yeah. crazy things that like, you know, you watch these movies and you're like, yes, this is this is 
A, George Lucas's politics, but B, very intrinsic to what Star Wars is. Yeah. And I'd love to delve a little bit into your process of talking to him about that, because it's not only the lore, because the lore is great to hear, and the what yeah. his sequel plans are is really great to hear. But what we're talking about at the very beginning, the influences and what has shaped him as a person, I think is what makes the Star Wars movies so great. And your experience diving into that, where where who George Lucas is, is Star Wars, and then all these artists kind of feed into it, um, I think is is where people got the perception of, of people being yes-men, which I also disagree with, right? Like, that's not what happened at all. They're collaborators. Exactly. Yeah, I think that there's a couple of things that I'd like to pick up on there. I mean, the first thing is, uh, the reading... Um, the reading experience is, is important. Mm-hmm. And the way that I've made these books, right, is that they can be read in different ways at different times, mm-hmm. right? Because normally people read, right, um, I used to be a technical author, right, dealing with manuals and all that stuff when there was paper, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you have to do is you have to think about how people are going to pick up and use what you present to them, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you know, most of the people, when they pick up a book, what they'll do is they'll flick through it, right? The book is a bit too large to flick through from the back, so most mm-hmm. people will probably flick through from the front. Yeah, they'll have a look. But in most books, people, they pick them up in their hands and they, they flick from the back, right? So, so for me, I'm saying, well, I want interesting images, you know, and I've got access to plenty of those. Right. And um, and so I'm looking at um, I'm looking at something that visually will cap- capture people's attention. Mm-hmm. Oh, then occasionally they'll say, "Oh, I I don't quite recognise that. I wonder where it is." Right. And then uh, they'll have a look. They'll start look at one or two of the the captions. Right. So the captions, the way I work is that as little as possible is repeated. Mm-hmm. Right. Unless it's on purpose. So um, so that the captions will contain quotes and information that's not in the main text. Right. And that the main quotes that you pull at the, pull at the top that you see as you flick through, these are normally called pull quotes. Right. right? Because they're normally pulled from the main article. Right. And but I don't do that. Yeah. It's always something new and it's always something different. So that and what I want is that um, as you read through it, that you as a conscious being. Right. And I'm talking about you, Brandon. Thank you. um, Is to is to put other make other connections in the same way that um, our brain makes, finds, joins connections of information that we're looking for patterns, Mm -hmm. right? I want people to engage with the book in that same way. There are, if you like, um, I have other ideas or agendas about things that I put into the books, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Nothing deep or whatever, but there, Mm -hmm. there are certain things or that I think should be there. And what I want is for these connections to be there within the fabric of the books, both books, because they do work together. And that for you as a, as a reader, 
for you for you to be able to go in there and delve in there and find additional information, right? And to make further connections. You know, this is why some of the documents are very important because the documents will actually list and show. Um, if, if you read every single document in that book, you will have such an incredible knowledge of, of Star Wars. I, I think the whole book, right, is... Uh, if you like, summed up by I think the last thing that George says, you know, uh, which is that um, basically things don't always work out the way you want. Yeah, right. life is like that. Yeah, right. Um, and what I'm showing if, is like is what life was like, right? And what what everybody had to go through in order to achieve what's on the screen, mm-hmm. right? But everything is always about building. It's always about building for the future, yeah? So the technology, so the company, um, the subject of Star Wars, right, and um, uh, uh, and the technology, everything is about education, innovation, right, and then looking forward to the future and how to do things better, and how to live better lives, right? It's sort of ironic that the trilogies are switched around the way they are, you know, because really, you know, one, two, and three are about, obviously, the fall to the dark side. It's about things falling apart. It's about how things go wrong in a world that at the beginning seems perfect. But as you say, how do you lose a de- democracy? You know, you vote, you vote in the bad guys, yeah. Right. Um, and Anakin is a beautiful, kind uh, person, right? Which is shown multiple times in the first film. So, so the thing is, it's about how you, how you personally, as a person, as an individual, and also as a society, uh, can go wrong. And then, obviously, four, five, and six is about how do you put things right on the right track, yeah. And uh, uh, and from what George says is really um, seven, eight, and nine. I think is really about how do you get it back to where it was at the beginning or better, yeah. Right, right. now anybody who's been through any experience. Uh, that's very intense, etc. Knows that this is always what happens. You know that if you work on a really big project, uh, there's a, a period where everything goes bad, right? There's a period where you've got to turn it around, and there's a period where you've got to make it right and get it finished and done. But there's also a, a, a philosophical message from George, you know, and it's about this idea of symbiosis, right? That we are all connected that the personal, the individual, and also uh, all the individuals, right, are in fact a collective. They're all connected. They all have impact on each other, right? And they must all learn to live with each other in order to save the species and to save uh, whatever and to live in harmony. And it's not just individuals as people or aliens, right? But everything within that biosphere, 
within you know a galaxy far far away you know so this is actually a very big subject mm. right um which is you know very serious and very philosophical and actually ties in with a lot of things that you see now in the world if you if you read sapiens for example mm-hmm. the book or um you see david attenborough's new new film or you know what greta thunberg is saying uh what you know an inconvenient truth there's there is so much uh, in the world today which is saying exactly the same thing right, right? which is that we need to work together right uh, we need to tolerate each other throughout the globe otherwise the globe will not we as the bioorganisms on the globe right will not survive and that's why you know right at the end of the book you know that was one of if you like the diversions that we went into mm. you know when we were talking about things and it was only really um right at the end uh, that i I was thinking, oh, how am I going to end this book? You know, mm-hmm. th- things are not obvious, you know, within the context of making the book. So, and it was only really at the end, they said, what do I have left over? <laughs> yeah, that I some, sort of cram in the end in order to make an end of some sort. Uh, and then when I started looking at it, I realized, well, actually, that's the important thing. You know, that's that's what I need to have in there, right? Mm-hmm. And I've got it. Right. And it's absolutely uh, crucial because it's talking about what happens at the beginning of Phantom Menace. I mean, Brandon, you know, when you saw Phantom Menace first, did did you pick up on symbiosis and, you know, we're all, you know, part of a, a symbiont world and all this sort of stuff? Did you pick up on that? Well, let me let me date myself a little bit. I was seven years old, but I will say the things that stuck out to me from Phantom Menace, sure, great lightsaber fights, sure, whatever. It remained my favorite Star Wars movie for years. I dressed up as Jar Jar Binks that first Halloween. Uh, sure. You know, but I think the difference between Phantom Menace and the original trilogy to me, maybe not Return of the Jedi, but especially the first two, is what you're talking about, the nature and everything is connected and, and kind of a return to what was the seeding ground for the original trilogy is is almost visually depicted. And and something that stuck out to me about Phantom Menace even early on were those kind of return back to nature, everything is connected. And I think the prequels especially, and why, why I loved this book and why I love what you're saying, the prequels were the first opportunity for me, again, as then let's say a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old kind of growing up, and like you talked about at the very beginning, were me finally figuring out the influences of something that I liked, right? I saw the special editions when I was five. Mm-hmm. I didn't really understand what was going on. But then yeah. especially with the prequels, George's determination to have bonus features or to talk about things that inspired him mm-hmm. became my film school and became my inspirations. And so as the years progress and as me getting it on DVD or me watching it over again and me then being like, okay, who is Akira Kurosawa? You know, what are these things that are inspiring the thing that I like? I think that more than anything is what stuck with me, right? Mm-hmm. From a very impressionable age. And so, and then I think now, you know, I think about my politics or I think about, you know, how I think the world should work or does work or whatever it is. 
and all of that comes from a seed which is star wars and like what you're saying i think it's very important for people listening to this podcast or reading star wars books to also read other books and to watch yeah. other things right? i think that's a very that's a very yeah. easy thing for a lot of fans to to do is just be like yeah. well like there's a new star wars book every three months and that's what i read and it's been a challenge for me you know and i mean i fixed that challenge when i was 13 and started reading yeah. other books but like but i think that's something that you can get stuck in a rut with yeah. And like what you're saying, you need to be able to pull the things that inspired the people that inspire you and then yeah. use that to kind of make yourself into a full person in, in symbiosis with, with the people around you. So I don't know if that answered any of your questions, but that's that's the legacy, at least of the prequels that I think is summed up very well here. Yeah, I, I mean, in the same way that after Star Wars, I started reading uh, the Foundation Trilogy by right. Asimov. Asimov, mm-hmm. You know, and then I got onto Alfred Bester and Harlan Ellison, you know, and then a whole pile of other writers. But also I'd be reading, um, you know, so for me, I could read, you know, uh, Emile Zola or Honoré de Balzac, or I could meet, I could read, you know, Carol Shields, you know, or Paul Oster or um, Robinson Davies, another great author. Joseph Conrad, I adore. Uh, Gerald Kirsch, obviously, um, uh, for me, a lot of noir authors. There's so much more I could read, yeah? Um, And and that comes from those initial um, explorations. I think that, uh, have you read uh, Joseph Campbell, The Hero of the Thousand? Yes, of course. Have you seen, you've seen also the TV series? The Bill Moyer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 which is fabulous. Yeah. And that's like you're saying, I watched that when I was 16 because I was like, oh, that's what inspired George Lucas. And so I'm getting like philosophy lessons and psychology, you know what I mean? Like all these things. But it's because I was like, okay, and it's filmed on the ranch or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, and so having an intro to it then gives you the credence and the the means to then explore it because it, it just kind of builds and builds and builds. And I think that's very important because then you're able to be like, okay, I'm done with my, I've seen everything Lucas was inspired by. Mm. Let me, what am I, you know, building from there sure. anyway. But this is how you learn. The first thing you learn is by right. copying. Right. right. And once you've copied something, right, you're then looking, you know, and you've exhausted all your own influences. How do you then move forward? Well, you've got to create something or something that's a melange, a mixture of your influences, right? And then the more you do it, the more you develop your own style, right? Mm-hmm. And it's at that point that you you start to find your own philosophy. You find the things, by that point, you should have learned life lessons. I mean, life is all about learning anyway. You always learn throughout your life. But, um, but, at this that point you become you yeah there's a point at which you're unconscious as a person and then you become conscious as a person but you don't you're not yet you because you're still unformed and then there's a point at which you become you and what's great about say joseph campbell um is that they show this life cycle of the journey of life mm-hmm. of uh, of individuals um going through but um, but what they do is it's like an easy way of telling a story, right? And we see it repeated in many other movies nowadays. But, but what is the lesson being learnt in that story? 
And that's that's the clue, is that, and that's what I've, if you like, through both of these books, is um, ultimately that's what I was trying to find out. What is the lesson to be learned from George that he's telling through Star Wars? Uh, and that's why sometimes we go off on these um, other thoughts and other other avenues, right. you know. So um, so there you go. I I don't I really there's nothing else to say. I, I I'm blown away by the books, but I'm also blown away by your insight and your talent. And I appreciate you coming on and and really obviously pick up the Tashin books if you have not. I I bought the also the small version of the original which is, you know, people are price conscious. It's very, it's a great volume to have. I actually am about to give it as a gift as well to someone else. What up, upcoming things do you have? I know you mentioned the James Bond archives are getting a, a re-release with the, with the new movie. What else should they be on the lookout for? Uh, well, actually, I am between jobs, as they say. So I've, I have nothing uh, at the moment uh, in the works. But, uh, but what I do, uh, what I've always done throughout my life is I've always worked on things that I'm interested in myself. So I always explore uh, other areas. So at the moment, I've, I'm, as I mentioned earlier, I've just been doing some writing of comic strips. So um, there's a, a little six-page strip coming out in, in a magazine called The Earth 77, which is inspired by all the comics from the 1970s, like 2000 AD and uh, heavy metal and stuff like that. Um, and uh, and also I'm developing that into a, an original graphic novel, uh, which is very very inspired by uh, Mobius, so mm-hmm. as George was. But also I make these little uh, print-on-demand books. So there's some writers that I love, um, Gerald Kirsch, who I, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, I'm just finishing a book to do print-on-demand about some of his writing during World War Two when he was a soldier in the in the guards in the uh, UK, in the British Army. So he would hide underneath uh, each night in the barracks. He would be underneath and he'd be um, uh, writing these little glimpses of army life, right, and sending them into a newspaper anonymously. Uh, right. And I've collected these. And in, in wow. a couple of weeks, they'll be available on uh, my Amazon page. Yeah, so if you look for me on Amazon, be there. And I've already done a few others like that. Um, uh, I've done a couple on Jack Dempsey, the world heavyweight boxing champion, very famous uh, athlete, but by Damon Runyon. Damon Runyon interviewed him before he became world champion against Jess Willard in 1919. And he's got his life story as a hobo. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they're all... They were published individually, you know, each day or week uh, as columns by, by Damon Runyon. And I, I've done two books of those. And there's a third book following through his uh, Jack Dempsey's life. Also, I've done a book, a print on demand on Stanley Kubrick, um, mm-hmm. where it's more like a Cliff Notes or York Notes, where you um, get an idea of the thematic motifs and visual motifs in Kubrick's work. And I've also done that, you know, and they're available as Kindles as well as print on demand if mm-hmm. you want them. So really, um, I've got about 10 of those lined up. Well, I've, I've actually got more than 10, but I've actually listed the title of 10. Uh, <laughs> so um, so I am having a great time um, 
working <laughs> on those. Obviously, I've put in, uh, I've got ideas for other books mm. with different publishers. We'll see what happens um, uh, in the meanwhile. But until then, I am great. Love it. Cool. And I'll put the link to the Amazon page, especially in the show notes. So everyone can check it Thank out you. beyond the Star Wars uh, pieces. And then, you know, we'll talk in uh, 20 years for uh, the sequel archives and, you know, well, or whatever it is. I mean, because I mean, everyone's like, oh, sequel archives. I'm like, okay, you need a lot of time for that. A, B, you can't have a through line like you have with these because it's not. It's not yours. Anyway, it's right. And so it's like, okay, I don't know what you could really do. But that's a whole different conversation because I see people tweeting that at you like every day. Yeah. So I, I feel your your pain there. But, but the, the thing is, no, normally what happens is that d- doing a movie is extremely difficult. All right? Right. And lots of things happen with them. And it is uh, it is like um, tectonic plates, you know, brushing up against each other. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, it's it's a very, very difficult thing in order to make something, to forge something, right? And I have great respect for anybody who makes anything. You know, it takes a moment to destroy a thing and it takes years to make a thing, yeah? Right. Uh, and this is this is very important, you know, you know from, from a mindset. So normally what happens, uh, certainly in the, uh, the movie industry, with all these IPs, etc., uh, everything is still saleable. Normally, you wait about 20 years, uh, as you say, before it, it becomes the past. It's no longer the future. Right. used to be, the, as you're making it, it's the future. It's in the present for about 10, 15 years. And after about 20 years, it's the past. And that's when everybody can really uh, talk about it and reflect upon it, yeah, right. um, from everybody's point of view. So uh, that's always the best time. So, um, so if... If I do get to do uh, sequels, that's when I'll, I'll, I'll do it. But of course, I'll be retired by then. You know, <laughs> you're you're going to have to do it, Brandon. I'll try to I'll try to uh, walk in these incredible footsteps. Because again, behind me, I have every single damn book that's been written about making Star Wars, and and these are are incredible views of of what the process took. And so, Mr. Duncan, thank you again um, for coming on and, and talking for so long. Uh, really, just, just cool. my pleasure, Brandon. Thank you again to Mr. Duncan for the time he took for this interview, as well as his incredible perspective and stories. Listening back on this episode while editing, I was again just so impressed and obviously so inspired by Mr. Duncan, and I hope to one day be half the interviewer, researcher, and writer that he is. As mentioned, links to buy Mr. Duncan's Star Wars books from Tashin are in the show notes, as well as a link to his Amazon store full of those incredible works he mentioned. And that's all for this week. Happy New Year, and until next week's episode, stay tuned. Leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you. You are the master interviewer, and so I'm normally I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll call up whoever and do whatever, but I'm like, it's a little daunting. But we'll see. We'll see how this goes. We'll see what happens. Yeah, but I'm normally the one being interviewed. you got to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. It'll be good for everyone.